can turn with me to Mark 15, Mark chapter 15 this morning, verse 16, as we'll be reading in a moment. The theme that we just sang through, the redemption of Jesus Christ and our response to him because of that redemption, one of bowing the knee, of praising him, of glorifying him, stands in stark contrast to the response of the people toward Jesus in our passage this morning. We find ourselves in the last day of Christ's earthly life. We've seen him standing trial at midnight. We've seen him betrayed by his closest friend, his disciple, Peter. And now we stand, see him taken away after being exchanged for Barabbas, a guilty criminal. He's brought into the praetorium and we find him being mocked and scorned and ridiculed. In our passage today, as we continue marching toward the cross, a very clear theme arises, and it's the exact opposite of what we were just doing. Not one of praise and adoration, but one of scorn, of mockery. What brings someone to treat someone else, let alone the Son of God, in such a way? Let's read our passage this morning and see what God has for us. Let's pray. Let's, let's begin with prayer, and then we'll read. Lord, we ask that you guide us this morning. And as we look at this sobering passage of who you are and what you went through, I pray, Lord, that you would show us the truths that you have for us today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 15. Read with me, starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple and plaited a crowd of thorns and put it about his head. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the follower of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And when they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull, they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroys the temple and builds it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross." Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. The Roman parade of triumph was a spectacle that would take place after a Roman emperor or general achieved a great victory. The conquering victor would be given a crown of laurel on his head and wear a purple toga. And as the victor rode through the streets on a horse-drawn chariot, crowds would sing his praises, chanting, Ia triumphe, 
In the processional, there would be a sacrificial bowl and a servant carrying the instrument of death. They made their way to the temple of Jupiter where the victor stood before the people and declared him as Lord. At that point in this processional, a sacrifice would be slain on the altar of Jupiter. And the crowds, the leaders, and the vice regents would join together in acclamation of the conquering leader, the victorious one. The Gospel of Mark was written to Christians in Rome who would have seen these parades multiple times, these spectacles of victory. And as they pick up Mark's Gospel and they read what is for us the 15th chapter of the book, I'm sure images of these Roman triumphs would come to mind as they read an ironic and dark iteration of this processional. Only this time, it was the Son of God. Instead of a purple toga, a purple robe was placed upon his bloodied back. Instead of a laurel wreath, a crown of, on his head, it was a crown of thorns. Instead of the accolades in honor of the soldiers, mockery and blasphemy. Instead of holding the scepter in his hand, a reed was struck across his face. The Son of God would then go through the streets with someone next to him carrying an instrument of death across. And he was led not up the steps of a temple, but up the hill called the place of a skull. And on that mountain, rather than sacrificing a bull for victory, he was lifted up as the sacrifice. And the mocking inscription placed above his head, the king of the Jews. And instead of all the people joining in praise and honor, everyone, even the thieves hanging on the cross next to him, joined in mockery, ridicule, and blasphemy. And this son of God was despised and rejected by men. And these Roman Christians reading the book of Mark would have seen a spectacle of mockery and shame Displayed in such a way for them in their culture and context echoed glory, honor, and victory. It's for this reason I entitled today's message Glorified in Mockery. It's clear that Mark wants us to notice the mockery. Verses 18 and 19, the soldiers mock Jesus. In verse 29, the onlookers deride Jesus. Verse 31, the chief priests and the scribes mock Jesus. And in verse 32, the other criminals being crucified with him revile him. And as we walk through this heart-wrenching passage and consider everything Jesus went through, I want you to ask yourself the question, why? Why did Jesus endure such mockery? Why did the king of creation endure this blasphemous display? Why did the savior of the world subject himself to such mistreatment, such mockery. As we approach this portion in the book of Mark, I want you to consider two passages of scripture we find elsewhere in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 through 25 says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed for you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Hebrews 12 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and founder of our faith, who, 
For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And these passages give us some reasons, at least why he endured such mockery. And in short, he endured such mockery for you. He did it so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. He did it for the joy that was set before him. In in, in other words, in the mockery, we see why we need a Savior. And in the mockery, we see the love of Jesus. You know, sometimes when you are listening to a sermon and you hear the application of it, sometimes a sermon calls you to do something, to obey a command. The word says this, therefore do this. But sometimes... The purpose and point of a sermon should not be, go do this, but to simply look and to simply consider and simply see what Christ has done. Look at your Savior, mocked and scorned, rejected and ridiculed. Look at him mistreated and maligned. Look and remember that he did that for me. He did that for you. And through this mockery, the Son of God is glorified as he embraces the cross and despises the shame. And just as the Roman triumph parade was meant to glorify the emperor in the eyes of the crowd, this parade of suffering and mockery would bring us to glorify our suffering Savior. We see in our passage today two scenes where this mockery takes place. The first scene is in the praetorium. This is the government headquarters. And here the Roman soldiers mock Jesus as a miserable king. And the second scene is on Golgotha. Here the crowds and even the other criminals on the cross mock Jesus as a miserable savior. And yet what we'll find this morning as we look at their mockery and we zero in on the words that they say, their mockery points to who he truly is. They were mocking the conquering king. They were mocking the only savior of mankind. Let's look at the mockery this morning and see what it has to tell us about who Christ is. First of all, we see the mocking of the exalted king. On the heels of Barabbas' release, Jesus has been brutally scourged. We see that in verse 15, right before our passage this morning. And if you've taken any time to read what that Roman practice was, you you know exactly how brutal and how excruciating and how torturous that is. He is led away by the soldier into the headquarters of the governor where a cohort of soldiers are gathering together. And these hardened Roman soldiers have no reason to honor or revere this Jewish man who has just been delivered to them by the mob outside. And for them, he was just another troublemaker, and this was just another Friday, and this was just another crucifixion. All they knew about him was the charge against him, the king of the Jews. And the Jews had just delivered him to die, some king. We see, first of all, in this passage, the mocking display. These Roman soldiers had most likely been part of Roman triumph parades before. They had seen the processional. They had seen the fanfare. You can almost hear soldiers start to come up with ideas. Hey, let's give them the, the royal treatment. In the Roman triumph, the emperor would be given a purple robe on his back, a laurel wreath on his head, and a staff in his hand. So one soldier clothes Jesus in a purple cloak. Jesus' back is torn and exposed from the brutal scourging he had just endured, and they place this cloak over his torn flesh, only to rip it off again later. Another soldier weaves together this cruel version of a laurel wreath, and instead they use thorns that is then driven down into his scalp. 
And then another soldier takes the reed, this mock scepter, and repeatedly, again and again and again, strikes Jesus' head with it. We see their mocking display and their adornment of Jesus and also their worship of Jesus. The passage tells us that they spit on him. They kneel down in homage to Jesus, bowing before this bloody and pathetic king that had just been deserted by his followers and rejected by his own people. There is most likely jeering and laughing heard among the soldiers as they partake in this blasphemous display. And I can only imagine Jesus looking at these men, these men who were made in the image of God, men who were made to worship their creator, and now they are mocking and ridiculing the author of life, the king of creation. And as he stands there taking the mockery, the prophetic words of Isaiah comes true in Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, and I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And here before the Roman soldiers is a mocking display, but there's also mocking words. We see in this passage that the words of mockery ironically point to the glory of Jesus. And as they spit on him and bow before him, they salute him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. Which was probably a parody of the greeting to the Roman emperor in the Roman triumph, Hail, Caesar, Emperor. They were looking at Jesus and mocking him and his claim to deity. And somewhat ironically, the Romans were mocking, the the ones the Romans were mocking was actually the exalted king. Remember what he had just said to the Sanhedrin the night before? You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus is the exalted king, and he came to this earth to take the form of a servant. And what these soldiers were doing in mockery, they will one day do in fear. Philippians 2, 6-11 says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That includes these Roman soldiers, the ones who are mocking him and taunting him and beating him. What depravity we see in the hearts of mankind, that they are capable of such mockery and such cruelty toward another human being, let alone God in the flesh. And it is such depravity that proves why Christ had to come to earth to die in the first place. And he endured the depths of human depravity so that he might rescue us from it. And through the mockery and suffering, Christ is exalted as king. And one day, everyone will bow their knees before him and shout, Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus endured that mockery so that you might praise and worship him as he truly deserves. As we look at the mockery of the Roman soldiers, we remember Christ did that for me. Christ endured that for me. But as we move to the next phase of his processional, we see the mocking of a sacrificed Savior. After the exaltation, 
After the mock, mock exaltation, Jesus is led out to be crucified. And just like the Roman triumph, he goes through the streets toward the hill of execution. We read in verse 21 of our passage that a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, was forced to carry the cross for Jesus, most likely due to Jesus' own weakness and blood loss. And Mark makes it a point here to include the descendants of Simon of Cyrene. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And perhaps you might ask, well, why does he include his lineage, those who come after him? Well, there's a good chance that Mark is including this because Rufus was somehow known by the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 16, verse 13, we read these words, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. There's a good chance that when Paul highlights this Simon of Cyrene, who was the father of Rufus, he knew he was talking to Christians who knew Simon's son, Rufus. And when they reached Golgotha's hill, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. Some think that this is part of the mockery. They would add, they would offer the finest of wine to the conquering emperor when he ascended the hill. It might be the, a type of narcotic to either deaden the pain or impair his faculties. Either way, Jesus rejects it. He turns it away. Some say it might be because he, he always said previously that he would not partake of the fruit of the vine until he comes again. But either way, he would not allow the full force of his suffering to be blunted, blunted or deadened. He was going to enter this time depending on the will of the Father and not on anything else. And here on Calvary's hill, our Savior endured the most humiliating form of mockery you can possibly imagine. And not only did he endure the mocking words, but the very act of crucifixion was an act of supreme mockery. And just like the crown of thorns and the robe and the scepter was an act of mockery about his claim to kingship, the cross was a mocking display of Christ's claim to be a savior. In his typical blunt and concise language, Mark condenses all the suffering Jesus endured on the cross to a simple phrase, and they crucified him. But the Roman Christians to whom Mark was writing would have not needed any explanation about everything that was involved in this ghastly method of execution. In his detailed survey of the historical practice of execution, author Martin Hengel wrote that, writes that because of its harshness, crucifixion was almost always inflicted on the lower class. This is a lower class penalty. The upper class would reckon with a more humane punishment. And simply by hanging on the cross, Jesus is being declared as the lowest of the low, not even deserving a more humane death. He also notes in his book that crucifixion was also the penalty for slaves. He says, as everyone knew, as such it symbolized extreme humiliation, shame, and torture, which sheds such interesting light to Philippians chapter 2 where we read that Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant, of a slave, and humbled himself to the death of a cross. There is no greater humiliation than crucifixion. We also know that the execution of the cross was to act as a deterrent. The shame and mockery connected with it was to deter others, to warn all others from following in their footsteps. You raise up someone in execution and say, don't follow their lead or this will happen to you as well. And yet, ironically, Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 32, and I 
when I am lifted up from the earth, talking about his crucifixion, I will draw all people to myself. And no wonder the chief priests wanted him crucified. They wanted him, they wanted him gone. They wanted to kill him because they were envious. We learned that last week. But why did the crowd shout out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? Why not any other penalty? Because not only did they want him dead, they wanted Jesus humiliated, shamed, and discredited. They wanted everyone to see this crucified Jesus and be deterred from following in his footsteps. His form of death was a form of mockery in itself. Everything about a crucifixion communicated this is a worthless human being. And Jesus, the Son of God, in the flesh, was crucified. We see the mocking display, and then we see the mocking words. We continue reading our passage, we see that the crowds are quite literally adding insult to injury. And as Jesus hangs there in shame and mockery, those around him mock and revile him. Three different words to describe the mockery from three different groups. First, the onlookers, we see, rail on him. This is irreverence, disrespect, slander. Second, we see the chief priests and the scribes mock him. These words mean to basically make fun of. Mark tells us that they mock Jesus to one another among themselves. They're, they're cracking jokes and making fun to one another of the one that they just crucified. And third, the two others crucified with him revile him. And this word revile means to heap insults upon, bring to shame. Given their own excruciating pain, they weren't railing on Jesus with mockery or jokes, but hateful insults heaped upon Jesus, and they used their last breaths to bring shame upon him. Whatever cloak of piety the crowds and the religious leaders had on before was now shed to reveal their own debased depravity. These, these pious religious leaders, these ones that wore the phylacteries and the long robes to show everybody how righteous they are, they were now mocking and ridiculing and poking fun and making jokes. Now that they thought they had the victory, they didn't pretend to hide their depravity. And what is the message of all of their mockery? Because they all say the same thing. There's different groups, different words to describe their mockery, but it's all the same ridicule. They're all making fun of the same thing, Jesus's inability to save himself. The onlookers in verse 29 they say, you who destroy the temple and rebuild in three days, save yourself. Come down off the cross. They take this accusation that was brought, brought in front of him in his mock trial in the middle of the night where they say, we heard this man will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And so they use this accusation again against him and say, you who say you're so powerful to do something such as that, save yourself. Come down off the cross. Verses 31 through 32, we see the chief priest's message of mockery. He saved others, they say. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even the thieves on the cross, while Mark doesn't tell us what their message of ridicule was, the Gospel of Luke does. 
Luke 23, verse 39 says, One of the criminals who was hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In all of their eyes, the real Messiah would not stay on that cross. A true son of God would save himself. And so the onlookers and the priests and the scribes and the thieves on the cross were all saying the same message. Get down. Save yourself. And save us while you're at it. They had no concept whatsoever of a Savior that sacrifices. And as they saw Jesus hanging there, they felt like their disbelief was validated, especially the scribes and the priests. I told you this guy wasn't the Messiah. He can't even help himself. Now, if he climbed down off that cross right now, then maybe I'd believe. The Roman soldiers missed the irony of mocking him for being a king. And the people standing around the cross missed the irony of mocking him for staying on the cross. Because he wasn't there to save himself, was he? He was choosing to stay on that cross so that he could save the onlookers. So that he could save the chief priests and the scribes. So that he could save the two thieves on the cross. While they're all shouting out, climb down off the cross, they should be thanking Christ for not doing that. We read in the Gospels that Jesus said, if I wanted to, I could send a legion of angels and they could come and help me. He was staying on that cross, not because he couldn't get down, but because he refused to get down. We see another message in the mockery. Christ was hanging there on the cross, enduring the mockery, despising the shame for the joy set before him. He was there to save. And in a masterful way, Mark points to the message of the mockery and actually uses that mockery to point to exactly what Jesus was accomplishing. It's funny, we read in our scripture reading Psalm 22, which you see many echoes of in this passage as Jesus fulfills that suffering servant model we find in Psalm 22. But in Psalm 22, we actually read some of the mockery that these people around the cross end up actually saying to Jesus. They actually, in their mockery, fulfill messianic prophecy. Even their mockery is used to one day glorify Christ. Through the irreverent and brutal words of his enemies, Christ is proclaimed as both Savior and Lord, as both King and Redeemer. He's proclaimed as King by the Roman soldiers. He's proclaimed as Savior by the mocking crowd around the cross. And when Peter later preached on the day of Pentecost, he proclaimed to the crowds, those who were mocking him on Calvary's hill, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And as we look at this mocking display this morning, we need to ask ourselves a question. How should we walk away from this? How should we walk away from this display? First of all, I think in the mockery, we see why Jesus had to come and to die. We see in the mockery and the display just how sinful, how wicked our own hearts are. That even when we can create for ourselves an image of righteousness, just like the scribes and the Pharisees, to show people how righteous we are and how polished we are and how good we are, at the moment when we feel like we have the victory, 
all of that veneer comes off and we're shown to be the depraved sinners that we are. None of us can say, oh, if I was there around the cross, I would have responded differently. We would have responded the same. We would have had no concept of a savior that dies, a savior that stays on the cross, a savior, a king that suffers ridicule and punishment and mockery. We most likely would have been mocking Jesus right along with them. We are hopelessly sinful, going our own way. Back in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has laid on Christ our mockery, our ridicule, our blasphemy. You could say that on the cross, Jesus was dying for the very mockery that they were hurling at him in that moment. In the mockery, we see why Jesus had to come to die. And in the mockery, we see who Jesus is. He tells his disciples from the very beginning, when, Jesus, when, when Peter first proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, in Mark chapter 8, Mark immediately starts to tell them, if you are to follow me, you need to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. He was telling them, my path as a Messiah, my path to glory is going through suffering. It is going through shame. And you cannot expect to jump from here to glory. You have to endure the suffering. You have to pick up your cross. You have to deny yourself. And here on the cross, we see that Jesus is glorified through his suffering. He is glorified through the mockery. He is proclaimed as the king, as the savior, through his mockery. And then thirdly, in the mockery, we see his love for you. He endured all that mockery for you. Would you endure that much mockery for someone? You were the joy that, set, that was set before him, that allowed him to despise the shame and endure the cross. If Jesus endured all of that for you, how can you doubt his love? And if you're here this morning and you're not quite sure, why, why did Jesus have to die? Why is this such a big deal to Christians? Why do we put something like a cross on a stained glass window? Why do we say it's all about Christ and what he did for me? Because if Jesus had to go through such mockery and he willingly put himself under such suffering, what does that tell us? That this is the only way. This is the only hope that you have for salvation. If there were another way, if there was a way to earn your way to good works, or if it was just a simple way for Jesus to show you I love you without any actual redemptive power in it, Christ wouldn't endure this. He asked his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. This had to be the path. And he did all of that for you. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, we read these words in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. If you enter this morning asking yourself, does Christ really love me? Does Christ really care? Look at the words of this passage. See what he endured. 
See the mockery, mockery that he was subjected to. And tell yourself, remind yourself, Christ did that for me. And if the father was willing to subject his own son to all of that and give him up for us all, how will he not with Christ graciously give us all things? Jesus is glorified in the mockery. He's glorified in the suffering. And to these Roman Christians who read of this processional, this mockery, and thinking in their minds of the, 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 the parade of triumph that they often saw on display. It was a reminder to them, as, as Christians in a lost world, that my path toward glory is one of suffering. It's one of mockery. Because Jesus said, if they will hate me, they will hate you. What a Savior that we have who endured such mockery for us. I'd encourage you to go through this passage, to go through what Christ has done for you and respond with thanks and glory. I said at the beginning, sometimes a passage is, the appropriate response to a passage is, go do this, right? Go obey, go take, do, do these steps. But today, my application for you is just to stop, think, and look. To remember what Christ did for you, the mockery he endured, and that he did it for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for enduring such hostility of sinners against yourself. For the example that you give, for the salvation that you offer. God, we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed of our own sin, our depravity, our own blasphemy. But we're overwhelmed by the goodness and love of your son who stayed there on that cross so that he might save us from our own sin who endured the mockery as a king because he is the eternal king. Lord, we thank you for Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you save.